Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this evening's event. Uh, my name is Martin Reed. Uh, I'm Head of Academic Services here in the Library at the London School of Economics and Political Science, and I'll be chairing tonight's public discussion. Our distinguished panel of speakers have been asked to reflect on the themes contained in the Library's current exhibition, Endless Endeavours. This uses materials from our collections and elsewhere to commemorate the 150th anniversary of the presentation to Parliament of the first petition calling for women's suffrage, an event which marked the beginning of organised campaigning for voting rights for women in this country, as well as the effective foundation of the Fawcett Society. So I'm very pleased to be able to welcome here to LSE today Elizabeth Crawford, Anne Dingsdale and Jane Grant. Uh, Elizabeth is a historian of the suffrage movement and has written several books on the topic, including The Definitive Research Guide to the Field, The Women's Suffrage Movement, A Reference Guide, 1866 to 1928. Anne Dingsdale is a historian and textile artist researching and celebrating the 1866 suffrage petition signatories, and we are very privileged to have one of her works on display in our exhibition. And Jane Grant is a long-standing friend and supporter of the Women's Library, based here uh, now at the LSE, and as well as being an author of the recently published book, In the Steps of Exceptional Women, The Story of the Fawcett Society. The discussion will take the form of a series of short presentations from each of the speakers, which will cover the evolution of the suffrage societies through which the campaign for the vote was conducted, an exploration of the lives and experiences of some of the women who signed the initial petition in 1866, and finally, it will look at the history and legacy of the Fawcett Society today, which grew out of the movement in support of the petition. Once all our panel have spoken, uh, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to Elizabeth, Jane, and Anne. Um, and um, there are one or two um, uh, points to make about housekeeping. So for Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is LSE Fawcett, um, up there on the screen. Um, uh, and I'd uh, ask you to put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt the event. Um, and I should let you know that the evening's event is being recorded um, and should be made available as a podcast uh, later on, assuming that we don't experience any technical difficulties. Um, there will also be a book signing um, taking place following the event with copies of uh, both the books I mentioned earlier, um, In the Steps of Exceptional Women uh, and the Women's Suffrage Movement, uh, on sale outside the venue just where you came in earlier. Um, and finally, uh, a mandatory fire, fire evacuation notice. Um, so if there is a fire, fire alarm, please leave the building as quickly as possible and assemble outside the post office uh, on the Old Witch. So um, those are all the pre preliminaries. Um, and um, uh, I'd like to, you to join me in welcoming first Anne Dingsdale, followed by Elizabeth, um, and then Jane. Anne. I first became interested in the 1866 suffrage petition around 1990. I knew that it had been delivered to Parliament by Emily Davis and Elizabeth Garrett and that the Kensington Society had played a part in it. I knew that the petition would have been verified and burned. 
I knew of a handful of women who were said to have signed, including Florence Nightingale, who didn't. Then, one day, when I was at Girton Archives, Kate Perry, the archivist, offered me a cup of coffee. As I sat in her office, I noticed on a shelf a volume of suffrage pamphlets from 1870. As I browsed through it, I found, bound in the middle, a list of names and addresses. I quickly looked for two people, Isa Craig, who'd recently become Mrs. Knox, and Mrs. Louisa Smith, sister of Elizabeth Garrett, who had died some weeks after signing. Both were there. I realised that this was indeed the list of all 1,499 women who had signed the 1866 suffrage petition. My research could really begin. At the completion of my PhD, I had found out something about a about, little bit about 600 of the women, um, and I felt bad about the other 900, whom I suspected were different since they didn't appear in the printed resources that were available at the time. I made this stitched hanging with all the women's names on it, as a tribute to those whose lives had been lost in the mists of time. But they didn't stay lost. Through exhibiting the hanging, I met some descendants of these women, one of whom is in the front row, Irene. Um, online family history st sites started to appear. The Dictionary of National Biography went online um, with many more women in. Um, and universities started uh, uh, making available texts that were previously hidden in their vaults. Um, I would say now that I have got some information about 90% of these women. And I already suspected that the women, the women who had been householders were canvassed since it was only male householders who were promised the vote in the bill before Parliament. The new proposals brought the exclusion of women householders who paid rates and taxes into sharp focus. Now, an example of that is South Street in Greenwich. Um, four women actually lived in South Street who, at, at some time who signed the petition. Um, in the 1867 directory, 27 out of 106 households in this street were headed by a woman. Of the women who signed the petition, I am certain of at least 200 who were householders, perhaps also running a business, boarding house, farm or school, and at least a further 100 had experience of living in such a household. Among the events that could affect a household, even one led by a father or husband, were desertion, divorce, mental illness, illiteracy, and single parenthood. Of the women who signed, four went through the trauma of the divorce courts within the next 15 years, and at least eight wives were deserted, at least four women 
had to deal with the mental illness of a father or husband. At least seven supporters signed the marriage register with a cross, and in fact one did that in 1868, so she was still unable to write her name. And five were either illegitimate themselves or had a child out of wedlock. This was a petition which crossed class boundaries and what emerges is a group of women who deserve more careful examination as individuals and as a group. I'd like to tell you about the lives of three supporters who lived near here. A widow who became a factory forewoman, a barmaid in a gin palace, and a comedienne and agony aunt. Jeanette Petrie was born in Soho in 1824, the daughter of a musical instrument maker. She married William Wallace Williams, a jeweller from Birmingham, in 1848 and had a son in 1849. But by 1853... Her husband had been returned to Birmingham to the lunatic asylum. And in 1855, he died there. In the 1861 census, um, Jeanette is on the staff of um, Paddington Workhouse. You can see girls' school just by the P of Paddington. That was her job. She was a teacher in the workhouse And her son, William, was a pupil at the London Orphan Asylum, which is described as for the maintenance and education of fatherless children who are respectably descended but destitute of means of support. She signed the petition at 17 Johnson's Court, just round the corner there, which was also the... um, headquarters of the National Secular Society and also the Chartist publishers Holyoke and Austin were based there and I would really like to know what she was doing at that address but I don't know. Um, Her son died in 1870 and by 1871 she was lodging in Pentonville and she was a forewoman in a chocolate factory. Um, One partner in the firm, the chocolate factory was probably Dunn and Hewitt of the Pentonville Road, and a partner in the firm was Charles Hewitt, who in 1864 published a textbook on chocolate and cocoa, which he dedicated to young women, encouraging them to engage in domestic chemistry to analyse foods and discover if they were pure or adulterated and what their health benefits were. In 1830, the first gin palace opened at 94 Hoburn Hill. I don't know why it says 64 on that. I think it's the architect having a bit of a fantasy there. By 1841... Jane Sarah Morgan, a young servant from Devon, was already working there. She lived in, first described as a servant, then as a shopwoman, and to a wine and spirit merchant, then as a saleswoman, sharing the living accommodation with the clerk, his young family, 
and the housekeeper. She signed the petition with one of her co-workers. This is what her workplace would have looked like um, at the end of her career there. By 1871, she had retired to Islington to live with her sister and brother-in-law and their family. And it was there that she died in 1872. She left just under £1,000. A remarkable sum for someone who had been a barmaid all her life. The third local woman is Augusta Johnston whose father was a dealer in musical instruments in Lincoln's Inn Fields. When she was six years old in 1824, he was bankrupt, and from what she wrote later, she may have witnessed domestic violence in the home. By 1851, she was the sole support of a widowed mother. She taught music and comedy. And in 1861, she was a theatrical performer, and her household consisted of her mother, a boarder, and a 17-year-old maid. In 1866, she was a professor of music in the local directory. But she doesn't mention she was also a published author. In 1857, she published a woman's preachings for women's practice, essays addressed to women on a range of topics. The first essay deals head-on with the prevalence of domestic violence, and other essays tackle alcohol dependence, debt, the realities of life for hard-working actresses and governesses. She warns against marriage for the sake of it, warning of the danger of marrying a rake, thinking that you will reform him. She frankly spells out the practical dilemmas facing single and married women in a world where men have the power. Her solutions to the problems she outlines are of their time, but there is much practical advice on self-protection and personal development. It's online, this book, and a good read, so do dip into it sometime. Excitingly, a full transcription of all the names and addresses of those who signed this petition is now available on www.parliament.uk on their About Parliament pages. From duchesses and newspaper magnates to charwomen and wool burlers, the archival resources and digital technology is available to explore their lives it becomes feasible to analyse the subtle, previously hidden networks within and across class boundaries. How was the petition collected? The centre was the Kensington Society, but beyond its members, the network of connections spread across the country. For example, the hostess of the Kensington Society, Charlotte Manning, was one who called on extended family connections to collect signatures. Her sister, sisters, sisters-in-law, stepdaughter, nieces and cousins signed. Her brother, the Reverend Henry Solly, had the headquarters of his Working Men's Club and Institute Union at 150 Strand, that direction probably, Um, And it's likely that Jane Morgan and Jeanette Williams' signatures were canvassed by members. 
Helen Taylor um, collected signatures for the, this petition from friends, family, and colleagues of John Stuart Mill, her stepfather. Responses from around the country are preserved in the Mill Taylor papers at LSE. Um, absolutely marvellous resource for finding out about this. They make it clear the geographical reach which the Penny Post made available to women. And in fact, more than 13 women from the extended family of Sir Rowland Hill also signed the petition. More than 100 women signed in Leeds. And the first impression is that this is a canvas in the tradition of the great anti-slavery petitions where you plodded down the street getting knocking on every door. Kensington Society member Miss Ellen Heaton was the local doctor's sister. She was a formidable lady, a patron of the arts, who actually intimidated Ruskin. Many signatures were collected in the Woodhouse area near her home. Women who sign are often working-class heads of household with dependents to support, and at least five of these women are among those illiterate. But also, I think something else is going on. What emerges is that when you look at the 1851 and the 1861 census, there's evidence that these women themselves have gone back to where they used to live and canvassed their neighbours. Could this be evidence of working-class women as active agents in the campaign, drawing on their long-standing networks of family, neighbourhood, and work in commerce and industry? This list, printed list of names and addresses was given to MPs and the press, conveniently arranged in alphabetical order. And the, one, of the, one of the two surviving copies is in the exhibition. I hope you'll see that. Um, I'd like to know what impact this had on the women who contributed to this controversial document. Perhaps when deciding to distribute the list of these good signatures to the press and MPs, Emily Davis had not appreciated the opposition that votes for persons rather than men would provoke. At the bottom it says, clear, pray clear the way there for these uh, uh, persons. It was John's, John Stuart Mill's suggestion that person should be replaced by man, uh, man should be replaced by person. These women's names and addresses were placed in the public domain. Did they know when they signed that this information might be available to their customers or the parents of their pupils? What was the impact, for example, on the outcome of Mrs. Oxley's case currently in the divorce courts? How might it affect the judge's view of her abusive husband's demand for her to return home? One clue may be that over a hundred teachers signed the petition, 
almost half of them school principals. But only three appear in the next few years subscribing to the suffrage societies. Principals of small schools were often supporting several relatives through their endeavours, and their livelihood could be very much at risk if their pupils' parents disapproved. The availability of the petition allows a unique insight into an unfamiliar group of Victorian women, those who do not fit easily into the stereotype of the middle-class wife and mother or the working-class woman in factory or field. I'd like to end by introducing you to a heroine of mine who signed the petition 150 years ago. Two letters from Miss Elizabeth Wilmshurst French are among Helen Taylor's papers in the LSE. Elizabeth was born in 1832, a farmer's daughter living in the tiny rural hamlet of Collier Street in Kent. She wrote to Helen Taylor in response to a request to canvass her friends for signatures to a new suffrage petition. She explains that she has no friends. The reason being that she wears trousers and advocates birth control. She adds, I doubt if I ever knew a woman who dared do so much as sign a petition without the approbation of the men, husband or other, who determine the amount of cash she has in her purse and whose temper governs her. Whether women get enfranchisement or not, they need it. Thank you very much, Anne. Um, And now we have um, Elizabeth Crawford. Um, First of all, I'd like to um, thank the staff of the Women's Library uh, who invited me to help with the um, Endless Endeavours exhibition. It was a great pleasure to be involved in that, and I hope you've all been to look at it. And I'm also grateful to be invited to speak today to distill 52 years of the suffrage movement into 15 minutes. (laughs) And uh, in order to help with this near impossibility, <laughs> in order to help with this near impossibility, um, I'm offering you an image to keep in mind, and that, unlikely it may seem, is the lava lamp, and uh, that, of course, is a 1960s um, icon, so a hundred years after the petition. But uh, just think of the lava lamp and the coloured bubbles of varying size which uh, form, endlessly rise, collide, divide, sink, reform. And as I describe the evolution of the suffrage campaign, think of the successive suffrage societies as the equivalent of those bubbles, each having their own time-specific raison d'etre, powered by their own leaders, guided by their own principles, but which as situations or personnel change, sink out of view or split or or merge or devour other societies. So in uh, June 1866, there was only one entity uh, floating floating in that uh, suffrage lava lamp, and that was the group that had organized uh, the presentation of the petition. 
And on the 7th of June, its members had uh, experienced a general air of euphoria. But this quickly passed, and the energy that enabled so many signatures to be collected in such a short uh, space of time seemed to ebb away. And the intention uh, was that the work of uh, presenting, presenting petitions should continue, but tentative and hesitant are the words that best describe the group's attitude as to how this should be done. And it took from June until uh, September, uh, well, until November 1866, for, um, so just a, a few months uh, where they were all at sea and they couldn't decide how the project should take shape. And for much of that time, uh, the group of workers didn't even conceive of themselves as a committee. Um, And after a good deal of discussion uh, by November, they did uh, finally agree to form themselves into a provisional committee, you see. And after much hesitancy, they decided to order some headed notepaper. And after even more debate, agreed that it it should be printed with the committee's aim which was the enfranchisement of unmarried women and widows possessing the due property qualification. An honest description, but hardly pithy. And uh, uh, John Stuart Mill and Helen Taylor had been insistent that the committee should consist only of women, but they were abroad when the final decisions were made, and Barbara Bodichon's view prevailed, and men and women were to work together. But uh, the enfranchisement of women uh, committee's short life was not very happy. When she returned to London, Helen Taylor withdrew, objecting to the inclusion of men. And the committee's first secretary, Louisa uh, Smith, Elizabeth Garrett's much-loved older sister, uh, had died uh, soon after her appointment, uh, as Anne has mentioned. And the role then fell by default to Emily Davis who was preoccupied uh, with other work, not least the launching of the Cambridge College, which was eventually to be at Girton. And uh, here I must say, as Anne said, uh, that uh, you can now read all the um, uh, letters that make up um, all this hesitancy and the the correspondence between them is all held in the Mill Taylor archive which now combines with the Women's Library Barbara Bodichon collection to give us a very good picture of uh, what they were all thinking and uh, all the to to, to and fro's of it all. And we can sit uh, there now in the Women's uh, Library reading room and uh, read the letter that Jesse Boucheret, who was one of the members of the committee, wrote to Helen Taylor on the 9th of April, 1867, complaining bitterly, blaming Emily Davis for failing to liaise with the groups in Manchester and in Edinburgh that had also organised petitions. For the suffrage campaign was even at this early stage not confined to the capital, Manchester had set up a suffrage committee in January 1867, so very hot on the heels of London and was very much more go-ahead with Lydia Becker as its secretary. And in April, it had presented two petitions in Parliament in support of Mill's amendment to the Reform Bill. In the event, uh, some London members thought that Emily Davis's efforts had been outclassed by those of Lydia Becker. Taking heed of the dissension, a decision was taken in July 1867 to dissolve the Enfranchisement of Women Committee and reconstitute it as the London National Society for Women's Suffrage. 
At this point, Emily Davis withdrew to concentrate her efforts on Girton, as Elizabeth Garrett had earlier bowed out to uh, concentrate on uh, the opening up of the medical profession to women. And in the early autumn, there was a meeting at which the idea of creating a federation of suffrage societies was discussed. Manchester was very reluctant, but in the end agreed to, to federate. I mean, they thought that they could get much more, they were much more go-ahead, they would be better off on their own. And at the same time, an Edinburgh society also joined. Manchester's committee included men, but uh, as uh, Mill and Helen Taylor, uh, Mill and Helen Taylor's insistence, the London Society still had only women members of its committee. Among these was uh, Elizabeth Garrett's much younger sister, 20-year-old Millicent Garrett Fawcett, who in May 1867, a month after her marriage to Henry Fawcett, who was uh, now MP for Brighton, she'd been present in the Ladies' Gallery of the House of Commons to hear Mill move his amendment to the Reform Bill. So it had taken from June 1866 to November 1867, but now a nationwide suffrage campaign was really established. New societies soon affiliated, Bristol and Birmingham in 1868, and both a Dublin and a North of Ireland branch in 1871. That lava lamp was now really filling up. Manchester had held its first public meeting in 1868, when one of its leading members, Mrs. Agnes Pochon, um, was speaking from the platform, and she was one of the first women to break the invisible barrier that deemed it unwomanly for women to promote their own cause in this way. Afterwards, Lydia Becker wrote to a correspondent who'd accused Mrs. Potion of disobeying the scriptures uh, by neglecting her family to attend the suffrage meeting. She assured her that she isn't leaving her children to cry out in their cots, even if they were that way disposed. And in fact, uh, Agnes Potion's daughter, Laura McLaren, uh, was to be a lifelong uh, suffragist. Anyway, the following year, that's in 1869, the London National Society held its first public uh, meeting, which was addressed by Millicent Fawcett. However, an umbrella group, the National, as a, an umbrella group, the National Society was increasingly views, viewed as ineffectual, particularly by Manchester members. It had no powers or offices, and to rectify this, Jacob Bright, a leading member of the Manchester Society, and a promoter in Parliament of suffrage bills, um, uh, proposed setting up a central committee of the National Society for Women's Suffrage. Bright thought that greater pressure could be brought on MPs if there was a committee in uh, London that represented all the suffrage societies. It wasn't to be uh, uh, synonymous with the existing London National Society, Indeed, some members of the London Society took strong objection to the Central Committee, thinking it contained too many members from provincial committees, many of whom, like Jacob Bright and Lydia Becker, uh, was, were also working with Josephine Butler on the repeal of the Contagious Diseases Act. Mill was adamant that the CDA campaigns should not be associated with the suffrage campaign. For, despite his intellectual um, contribution, Mill was a repressive influence. His idea was that they should just wait for a new parliament when there might possibly be greater support for the cause. After his death in 1873, Helen Taylor continued with the same mantra. Uh, for instance, that she offered to pay £50 to the London Society not to hold a public meeting. 
So, although there was considerable acrimony, it was decided in 1872 that the two groups, the London National Society and the Central Committee, could coexist in London, although some members of the London National did actually defect to the Central Committee. And for a time uh, in the early 1870s, Agnes Garrett, Millicent's uh, sister, Millicent Fawcett's sister, was joint um, secretary of the Central Committee, while her cousin, Rhoda Garrett, was one of its most effective speakers, delivering speeches not only in London but all around the country. But time moves on, things change. In 1877, Jacob Bright, who'd been so closely associated with the CDA campaign, retired as parliamentary spokesman for women's suffrage, and this enabled the London National Society to join with the Central Committee of the National Society for Women's Suffrage. This was to some degree a Manchester takeover because Lydia Becker soon became secretary of the Central Committee, a position she was to hold in tandem with her Manchester duties. In that lava lamp, the Manchester bubble was rising and London's was sinking. The years uh, 1880 to 1884 and the lead-up to the new reform bill were a time of optimism. It was thought that by developing a populist movement, holding mass meetings in London and in provincial cities to demonstrate that they were in earnest in their desire for the vote, women would convince Parliament to include them in the new reform bill. There were nine of these grand demonstrations, as they were called, at which Lydia Becker was a speaker at eight. Here uh, here we see Rhoda addressing one of the first. She was one of the suffrage campaign's star speakers until her tragically early death in 1882. However, despite all this effort, women were not included in the 1884 Reform Act. In 1888, there was another reaction when the Central Committee split And uh, I now have to issue a politics alert to remind us that the suffrage campaign can never be uh, dissociated from the wider political scene. For in 1888, politics played its part in shaping the suffrage campaign when the Central Committee split, as did the Liberal Party, over the issue of Home Rule for Ireland. It was, of course, much more complicated than that, with a good deal of spin clouding the issue. But in essence... Millicent Fawcett and Lydia Becker sided with the Liberal Unionists, while others, such as the Bright McLaren clan, were for Gladstone and Home Rule. Now, think of that lava lamp. The main bubble, the Central Committee, divided. The slightly larger element, Millicent Fawcett's group, retained the name Central Committee of the National Society, with Millicent as its honorary secretary. The smaller, more radical liberal, uh, with a subtext of pro-home rule element, broke away to become the Central National Society for Women's Suffrage. But this society, in its turn, in 1889, lost its radical wing to a new group, the Women's Franchise League. Um, that group had its, at its core Elizabeth Wustenholm Elmy, I may say as one of my heroines, who had been one of the earliest Manchester suffrage campaigners and had on its committee Richard and Emmeline Pankhurst. Richard Pankhurst had worked with the Manchester Committee from the very beginning, and Emmeline had been on the Society's Executive Committee since 1880. In 1895-6, the Central Committee and the Central National buried their differences to work together on a special appeal committee in support of a new suffrage bill. 
and it was this cooperation that paved the way for the formation in 1897 of the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies. And in 1900, with time having sealed the rift, the two groups merged to become the London-based Central Society for Women's Suffrage. Now, throughout the 19th century uh, years of campaigning, local suffrage societies have been formed throughout the country, and in the 20th century, these federated under the umbrella of the NUWSS, and from 1907, Millicent Fawcett was their president. It had taken 33 years with no suffrage bill passed, but the campaign had progressed from uh, not being sure if it would even have a society to being a familiar presence in all the major cities of the British Isles. On the way, its side campaigns had ensured the passing of the Married Women's Property Acts and acts that allowed women to vote in local government elections and to stand for some local uh, local government positions. And campaigns by its leading uh, early members had opened up the higher education of women and the medical profession to women. And up and down the country, women were speaking at meetings, in cottages, in drawing rooms, in marketplaces, in public halls, calling for their own emancipation. It had taken time, but the angel in the house had definitely now escaped into the public sphere. However, between 1897 and 1904, no suffrage bill was discussed in the House of Commons. In October 1903, the NUWSS backed the National Convention for the Civic Rights of Women, held at the insistence of Elizabeth Wussenholm Elmy and attended by 200 delegates, which it was decided to mount a very much more active campaign in the lead-up to the next general election, which was due in early 1906. It's worth noting the date of the National Convention, which was the 16th to 17th of October uh, 1903, for it was just six days earlier, on the 10th of October, that in Manchester, Mrs. Emmeline Pankhurst called to her house a few members of the Manchester Independent Labour Party, women members, I may say, and formed the Women's Social and Political Union. The timing may have been fortuitous. It's not known if she'd been invited to the National Convention, but she was in close contact with Elizabeth Wissenome Elmy. But, but she was by now uh, sceptical of the ability of the NUWSS to campaign effectively. Initially, there was some cooperation between the WSPU and the NUWSS, but the harmony didn't continue when the NUWSS realized that the WSPU militancy was positively harming the cause. In the autumn of 1907, the nascent WSPU split over the issue of internal democracy, with Mrs. Charlotte Despard leading a breakaway group to form the Women's Freedom League. This society was militant insofar as it advocated civil disobedience, but didn't support violent means of protest. Throughout the next seven years, until the outbreak of war in August 1914, the number of suffrage societies multiplied. The actresses, the musicians, the civil service, the conservatives, the Fabians, the Quakers, the Church of England, the nonconformists, the Catholics, the Jews, the gymnasts, the Irish, women writers, the Welsh, London graduates, Scottish graduates, men the New Constitutional Society, women teachers and women taxpayers all formed their suffrage societies. The main groups, however, were the NUWSS, the WSPU and the Women's Freedom League, the WFL. In 1912, the WSPU split again when Emmeline and Christabel Pankhurst expelled Mr. and Mrs. Pethick Lawrence, who had been essential in building up its organisation and ensuring that it was well financed. The Pethick Lawrences then set up their own organisation. 
And Sylvia Pankhurst, Mrs. Pankhurst's younger daughter, was also expelled and proceeded to conduct her own campaign in the East End of London. By August 1914, that lava lamp was effervescent, densely packed with a swirling uh, multi-hued societies, for each sported their own colours. They periodically coalesced over grand projects such as the 1911 suffrage coronation procession, only to ricochet apart once more. One of those bubbles was fizzing so dangerously it was about to implode, for by August 1914 the WSPU was on the brink of collapse. Its campaign had become so violent that the government was using ever more brutal methods uh, against convicted WSPU militants, and it had clamped down on the WSPU's ability to hold public meetings, to raise funds, and to maintain an office. Mrs. Pankhurst was on hunger strike in and out of prison, uh, while Christabel was conducting uh, affairs uh, from the safety of Paris well behind the front line. But then, on the outbreak of war, all the suffrage societies ceased their campaigning and instead backed the war effort. The light in the lava lamp had all but gone out. However, while the WSPU and many of the other suffrage societies disbanded, the NUWSS maintained its structure and kept its ear to the political ground, so that in autumn of 1916, when a suffrage speakers' conference was set up to discuss the terms for the new electoral register, it was Millicent Fawcett, with the backing of the NUWSS and some other non-militant societies, ensured that women would be included in any new bill. The WSPU took no part at all in these negotiations. Millicent Fawcett kept up constant pressure, lobbying every member of the government in person. The result was that women over the age of 30 were at last given the parliamentary vote. Although the NUWSS recognised that this age discrimination was quite logically indefensible, they knew that once they won this measure, full equality would follow. As Mrs Fawcett said, we should greatly prefer an imperfect scheme that can pass to the most perfect scheme in the world that could not pass. Fifty-three years after she collected signatures in Alborough for the first petition, she was now able to retire and pass the baton to Eleanor Rathbone, who in 1919 took the, up the position of the president as president of the society that had originated in that nameless 1866 committee and was now, after all its transformations, the National Union of Societies for Equal Citizenship. So I think that's taken you at a trot <laughs> through. And I'll hand over. Right, if you've, we've, had, we've been through the first 50 years of um, what is in effect Fawcett Society's history um, at a brisk jog, I think you said, or trot. Um, we're going, we're, we are going to have to need to go through the last 100 years at a gallop. Uh, the representation of the People Act that Elizabeth talked about uh, in 1918 was a huge achievement in that it granted women the right to vote for the first time. But not all women, only those over 30 or with property qualifications. It was certainly not universal suffrage, and Millicent Fawcett was not satisfied. The years after World War I were years of great feminist activity, not just towards the full vote, but to allow women to stand for Parliament, 
Nancy Astor, of course, was the first to do so in 1919. The Sex Disqualification Removal Bill, which got women into various professions. The Law of Property Act for 1922. The Matrimonial Causes Act in 1923. Times and attitudes were changing. And Millicent was able to rally women and suffragist organisations to lobby Stanley Baldwin, the new Prime Minister. And in 1928, the Equal Franchise Act was passed, giving women the vote on the same terms as men. Millicent, having been there at the beginning, went home, as she said, with a thankful heart. And that night she wrote, I have had the extraordinary good luck in having been, seen the struggle through from the beginning. Of course, it wasn't really luck. It was complete persistence. There's a lovely photo, which I hope is going to come up. Oh, no, it's not. There we are. There's a, lov- there's a lovely photo of Millicent in a car celebrating with her friend. She's the one, apparently, at the back, at ma- back far, far back. And the last year of her life, was largely spent in going to celebratory parties and receptions and always coming back laden with flowers. So she, she, had, she really did get the fruits of her, her labours. There was a certain amount of repositioning going on. Of course, if an organisation wins its primary aim, manages to achieve it, it's wonderful, but they often collapse because where do, where do you go from there? Now, in this case, there was a repositioning. The N... Uh, I, that's actually the cover of my book, but it's the, NU, it's the symbol for the, N, the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies. You can see all the different branches that came into it. Um, so that, uh, ch- ch- which Millicent had led, became NUSEC, the, the National Union of Societies for Equal Citizenship, under the leadership of Eleanor Rathbone, while the London Society for Women's Suffrage, the, the predecessor of the Fawcett Society, changed from suffrage to service. So, change, reposition. The LSWS, having been through a very successful war, mainly through running a service bureau to place women in jobs previously done by men who had gone to the front, fell, of course, on hard times because all the money that had been available for them to do that was no longer available. So when the money dried up, and they had to to remove themselves to a tiny room, a tiny office, they were rescued in 1924 by a gift of £1,000 from a generous benefactor uh, called Sarah Clegg, which allowed them to establish a centre in the former Fleece pub in Marsham Street in Westminster. Here, for the first time, they were able to establish a library in 1926. This is the first picture of the... Is that right, Reverend? Uh, of the first picture, the first picture um, of the Women's Library, uh, the direct predecessor of the Women's Library in the LSE now, uh, and about to cel- celebrate its 90th birthday. Then in 1929, Sarah Clegg gave them more money, and they were able to plan ahead, to plan and build a quite extensive purpose-built centre on land between Martian and Tufton Street. It's a rather grand portico of it. At the heart of this was what came to be called the Millicent Fawcett Hall. And during the 30s, the hall was the absolute centre of the women's movement, the headquarters of the society's famous junior council, the place to be, and the platform 
on which everybody wanted to speak. In January 1931, for instance, Virginia Woolf told an audience of 200 members of the Junior Council and many distinguished guests, like Vera Britton and so on, that you have one rooms of your own in the house hitherto exclusively owned by men. You are able, though not without great labor and effort, to pay the rent. But this freedom is only a beginning. How are you going to furnish it, decorate it? With whom are you going to share it, and on what terms? These glory days of the society came to an end when war broke out and the whole area was carpeted with bombs, incendiaries, causing extensive damage. You can see this was right round, right round the centre, um, even when, I mean, the centre wasn't completely demolished, but bits of it um, were there, and this was going on all around. The first... Um, the library, which had had a purpose-built room, building, um, premises within the centre, uh, was, was the first to be de decamped to, to Oxford. It was decamped to Oxford and then spread amongst four different venues in, in four different locations in Oxford. But it soon became clear that the society could not continue in the building, and they left never to return. Although by a quirk of fate, the society does have access to the Millicent Fawcett Hall now, and, uh, which is now the drama department of Westminster School, and my book was actually launched there in March. The society, which finally became the Fawcett Society in 1953, started a rather peripatetic life. For 20 years, they owned a property in Wilfrid Street, known as Fawcett House, which they shared with the library. They shared with the library, but the library wasn't very well housed. In fact, the archives were apparently in a shed in the garden, and they were said to have rather a lot of rodent damage, sinister. But after this was sold in 1977, and the library moved to the City of London Polytechnic, the society has never again, again owned property, moving from Victoria to Vauxhall to the Barbican, Clerkenwell, and now Southwark. I called my book In the Steps of Exceptional Women because that is certainly what Fawcett has had in plenty. We've seen the extraordinary um, contribution of Millicent Fawcett and the others from the early days, Lydia Helen Taylor, Lydia Becker, and so on. But this has not been a, there's not been a shortage since. I, I, just, I could have chosen any number, but I wanted to just choose two. One of them, that's Philippa Strachey, renowned sister of Lytton Strachey, um, began working in the, for the society in 1907 and remained as its secretary until her retirement in 1951. I mean, work that one out, when she was nearly 80. This portrait was commissioned from her, Henry Lamb when she was 85. And Mary Stott... There she is. Bless her the distinguished editor of the Guardian Women's Page, came to London after her retirement and immersed herself in Fawcett, becoming chair and playing an extremely important role in the latter half of the 20th century. Stalwart. You could say that Fawcett's role since 1928 was, has been an attempt to ensure women use the vote, use it fully and well, and work to ensure true equality between men and women. 
In the 30s, they campaigned on equal opportunities and equal pay, on the abolition of the marriage bar, and on the nationality of married women, on the modernization of, for, of the foreign, foreign service to employ women on equal terms as men. Many of these themes continued into the second half of the 20th century, when Fawcett campaigned relentlessly for the Equal Pay Act of 1970, and they've been, in fact, campaigning for equal pay ever since, because, of course, it is nowhere near achieved, and the Sex Discrimination Act of 1975. This period was marked by the Women's Agenda event in 1980, organized by Mary Stott, the Book Prize, organized for a number of years at the end of the century, renowned Book Prize, and the cartoon exhibition Funny Girls in, 1980, in 1997. Fawcett entered the 21st century as a much more streamlined professional organization having employed Sheila Diplock as its first director in 1992, the first of a series of high-profile directors. This moved the organization from being largely run by its members, by, in, in effect by volunteers, but it still finds it hard to get funding, a perennial problem for the women's organizations, and its survival over 150 years is a major achievement. Everything about Fawcett has become more professional. It's campaigning, it's marketing. Yeah, it's campaigning. It's, 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 it's marketing, it's presentation, it's publications, it's publicity. Mar Fawcett entered its anniversary year this year in good heart, strong, diverse, vocal listened to. It had a new logo. Oh, <laughs> so we'll see if we can get that one up. Oh, it has, it's, it's, it's birthday. Its anniversary celebrations have received just the sort of high-profile recognition which it deserves, including a reception in the Speaker's um, House at the House of Commons. And in fact, what is planned now um, there's a committee coming, a committee we've heard about, so many committees coming together, a committee coming together um, to create a statue of Millicent Fawcett in Parliament Square, which would be a, like, full circle and would be a true legacy. Thank you very much, Jane. Um, I'd like to thank um, all of our speakers for uh, such a, a fascinating series of presentations um, and uh, the ability to compress so many years of research into sh such a short space of time. Um, really well done, everybody. Um, we'll now uh, open up the floor to questions from the audience. So um, uh, please can you let us know your name and affiliation and wait for the stewards with the roving microphone to get to you before you ask your question. Uh, Joanne Sanderson, please can I just remind Jane that it wasn't Nancy Astor who was the first woman to be elected to Parliament. It was Constance... Uh, um, she didn't take her seat. Did she? She, oh, she did take her seat, yes, but, but she wasn't the first woman to be elected. Stand corrected. Are there uh, any other questions? Yes, stand in the front. 
Hi, um, my name is Lorna. I'm an alumnus of the LSE from the Gender Institute. And I now work at the Royal College of Nursing who are celebrating their 100-year anniversary this year. Um, just a question, because, you know, when we, when we talk about the, I suppose, this feminist movement that has, has gone on over the last 150 years, how do you think it works intergenerationally? And that kind of, even in today, how do the generations of women learn from those gone past? And what do you think the relationships are between sort of past generations or older generations and younger generations? Do you think there's cohesive working there? Do you think we work together well? Do you think there's something that younger feminists could do that would be to uh, enhance what we know by working more in, in collaboration with older feminists, or do you think that that's something women do well? Um, in terms of the women who signed the suffrage petition in 1866, most of them were born before 1845. And in fact, there are grandmothers then, there are people who sign on their deathbed. But also, you do have a few... Um, I'm sure there are more, but there are daughters and nieces. And in fact, the example of Emily Evans Bell, whose daughter, um, Ernestine Mills, was a, um, an enameler and who did a lot of work celebrating suffragists and suffragettes, um, is an example of that. Moving into the project, I wonder if we, if we do enough in terms of learning from the lessons that have gone before us. Like, why are we still fighting the same fights? Why are we still looking for people? <laughs> well, what are we learning from? I think you can you see from um, the 52 years of the suffrage societies and all these um, uh, societies that uh, um, you know ricocheted off each other. I mean, they were so personality-led, and it's whether people women or men, but whether women in this case can work together. I mean, in fact, the history of the suffrage society is that they can't. They keep on <laughs> reforming and, uh, you know, a strong leader will take over and uh, they'll form their own society. I don't know what it's like uh, now, and uh, really. But what, the full society is uh, obviously much more directed. Yeah, I, th I, th I think women... One of the things that um, women's organisations have found difficult, traditionally, I mean, is, is attracting younger women. I mean, a lot of a lot of the organisations are ageing, and they are not bringing in new young young women. Fawcett, interesting enough, in the 30s, had this part of them, part of a sort of some section of them, called the Junior the Junior Council, which was huge tremendously successful. In fact, it almost led the whole organization it had, and women joined in order to get support in their careers. And um, so they didn't have, and then unfortunately with the war, you know, I mean, like a lot of you know, things that were um, victims of the war, it, it collapsed and you never know what might have happened. I mean, now I think women, I think Fawcett, uh, attracts more younger women than most organizations. Probably not enough, but it does. And I think that thing about relationship, you know, being the, the older women, I mean, Millicent Fawcett was hugely encouraging to young women. She really wanted to see young women so that when they only, you know, women under 30 didn't get the vote. I mean, you know, she was outraged and she was really wanted to push it forward so they did get the vote. So she, um, 
But, you know, this thing about not being, that the whole relationship with you, are the older members who've been there for years, you know, are they um, patronizing to younger women, are they supportive to younger women? I think it's a whole, I mean, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's very, I think it's quite a difficult, difficult field how organizations attract and keep and encourage younger women. Thank you. Um, question down at the front. Thank you very much for the talk. My name is Natalia from UCL. My question goes to uh, all of you. It's about the contributions of the women of color in the 150 years of the Fawcett's. In terms of um, the suffrage petition, one of the remarkable women who did sign was Sarah Parker Remond. Now, she was an African-American anti-slavery activist in America, um, and she had uh, taken the theatre in uh, Boston to court because they refused her admission, and she won the case but she was frustrated in New York by not being able to get her education. And because of the ties between the English and the American anti-slavery movement, she came over and went to Bedford College. While she was in England, she lectured all over the country and signed the suffrage petition. She then went to Florence and trained as a doctor and practiced as a doctor there. Um, another person of, of mixed race is Frances Power Cobb's uh, cousin. Her uncle, Frances Power Cobb's uncle, um, had married an Indian princess. And there's a very touching passage in his will where he apologizes to his wife for having said that his daughters were disadvantaged by having an Indian mother but in fact her, the daughters came back to England uh, when their fa father died and Francis Parkob brought them up and at least one of those two daughters um, signed the petition as well that's the, on that's the only evidence I found of that was just two out of the just a, well it's, it's yeah, at so least two yeah. we don't know yeah. about yeah. Because in fact, I mean, I was sitting here in the autumn when uh, there was the event with the director and producer of the film Suffragette, and the same question came up. And um, we had to say that because uh, you know the film got criticised uh, for not uh, including women of colour, and we had to say that actually, in all the research we've done, apart from um, a, a few Indian princesses um, who have, took part in the um, 1911 coronation suffrage procession and uh, uh, Princess Sophia Julie Singh who was well known I, I mean I've been unable to find anybody else and it, it's not for want of looking it would be so interesting if one could find somebody um, but in say the WSPU the NUWSS I, I've really not found any it's not to say that they're not there but they certainly didn't make themselves at all evident I think diversity on race is another big issue for the women's movement, for the, um, just as it is on age, and some do better than others, I mean, to be, to be honest. 
Um, but it's definitely, it's, it's definitely an issue. I mean, I think Fawcett would consider, does consider it a very important issue to attract um, BUPM women. Thank you. Um, do we have any more questions? There's one at the back. To um, a sixth form. Um, I was just wondering that there's like an image that comes with feminists, like a feminism, like a feminist, and like women are scared to call themselves a feminist nowadays because they think there's there's like an image with it, like they think of extremists, and there's even like new movements such as Meninism, which is like like which is starting to make a comeback and not a comeback, but it's starting to like become a thing. And I just wanted to know if there's a way to like that we could help educate people because I've tried telling people that it's just equality, but they're like, then I'm an I'm an equalitist. I'm not a feminist, and it really bugs me because I've had friends who said that they were feminists, and then they see this idea that's been portrayed, and then they change their mind, and I, I it just it makes me really annoyed. <laughs> Well, I could say that, uh, that during the Edwardian years, well, well, in the 19th century, um, there was perhaps uh, less uh, um, visual material produced, but during the Edwardian suffrage years, I mean, there were just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of uh, uh, postcards depicting uh, suffragists, i.e. feminists, and there they were with their umbrellas and... Uh, uh, Spectacles and big feet. I mean, it was just a joke. I mean, it's something that's just been going on you know, since time immemorial, I think. Uh, I don't know how you change it. Could buy the t shirt. <laughs> yeah, the t shirts. Yeah, the t shirts. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, another question down at the front. Um, next question down at the front. Hi, I'm Jess. I work in a secondary school, and one of the problems I think I find is male attitudes to feminism. Um, and I wanted to ask maybe if I could just have something positive to say to them, apart from obviously male. Um, who were some of the important men in getting women uh, the vote? Were there any, if there's any that I can yes, yes. sort of call? You, know. you saw some of them... Uh, I mean, even, you know, in the 19th century, it, it, Mill, led, John Stuart Mill, uh, led it. He, as I say, he was uh, very uh, hesitant, uh, but, uh, I mean, his book, Subjection of Women, was their Bible. So, and then Jacob Bright, uh, they had a lot of supporters in Parliament, Henry Fawcett, Millicent's husband, and all through the 19th century, there were a lot of men um, supporting it at all levels of society. Um, and uh, in the uh, Edwardian suffrage years, there were men's suffrage societies, the men's uh, um, on both on the militant and uh, the non-militant side, uh, very um, vocal men. Men went to prison then, Which were forcibly fed um, in the 20th century. Um, one man, in fact, who was forcibly fed, was then sent off to Coney Hatch Lunatic Asylum because... Um, he, he protested so much about his forcible feeding. Uh, women weren't uh, 
decided, that, I mean, it wasn't said that they were insane when they protested, but because he didn't act manly. He, so, uh, yes, there were men at all levels. And uh, the big movement in uh, uh, 1910, 11, 12 um, was an entity called Conciliation Committee, which um, uh, were MPs in Parliament and a lot of backers trying to get a bill um, through. Uh, so, um, I mean, they, they were certainly men in the movement, yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, if there are no more questions, then I'd like to... Like to sorry, there's, there's, there's one question. This, this will have to be our final question. Uh, hello, uh, my name's Rob. Um, yeah, so my question is, um, for going forward now with feminist arguments and trying to make it work, um, do you think it would be better to have more focused ideals or more broad ideals? So obviously we talk about feminism um, and we for female equality, but then obviously there's like racial issues, education issues. Do we try and get all of that into one argument, and in, as well as kind of the um, gender roles and all? Of, do we get all of that into one, or do we focus on kind of one thing at a time? So it's like do we, we just want voting, or we want um, equal pay to be sorted out, and then we'll look at the next issue. You, like, what do you think would be better for us today? To would it be like get everything under one blanket and all try and get under it, or try and make little different groups to attack things differently? <laughs> I don't know, this is a rather personal opinion. Equal pay would be a start, wouldn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, what they found, of course, was that it was the slow drip. I mean, it took from 1866 to just change the view that women... Uh, the view of women, I mean, the idea of them being a voter is just laughable, like the the idea of them being a doctor is laughable. Uh, So you have to slowly uh, uh, change attitudes. Uh, I mean, you think we'd have done it by now, but... uh, Do we change those attitudes by going for really, really nuanced things, like differences in pay, gender pay, equality, like that? I think it's a balance. I mean, I think you can, you, you can do a sort of scatter kind of thing where you find everything, and Fawcett rather used to do that. He used to have this huge long list. And then they started thinking, oh, well, you know, we better be a bit more incriminating. And there's a magic occasion when they said, oh, we are not going to support the um, campaign for turnstiles to, to women's toilets because it is not in our, you know, in our manifesto or something. So, I mean, they did say no to Kate. So, I mean, I think if you, travel, if you concentrate on one thing, you know, especially as a lot of things are very connected, so you, know, you, you could then you know, rather restrict yourself. And then if you don't achieve it, you know, then you're... So, but, so I, th- I think it's a balance between not letting yourself be too scattered in, onto absolutely everything. Um, and concentrating on the, the more important ones. 
Okay, well, well, thank you very much, everybody. Um, and I think that's a, a, a very good note to end on, looking forward to the future, thinking what's next, um, what's next for campaigning for the women's movement. Um, so I'd like to take this opportunity um, to thank um, all of our speakers again for um, a really um, fascinating series of talks um, and for um, uh, enlightening us about um, the, the history of the, uh, the Fawcett Society um, and... Um, the, the, the women's movement. Uh, I'd also like to thank all of you for um, taking uh, the time to come and um, be with us uh, today. Um, and uh, so I'd like to, to thank our speakers again. I'd ask you to join me in thank